Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. Our topic is dual-class stock reforms. Our special guest is Renee M. Jones, Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Boston College Law School. Professor Jones recently testified before the Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets of the House Financial Services Committee at a hearing entitled Examining Private Market Exemptions as a Barrier to IPOs and Retail Investment. Professor Jones' written testimony included a discussion of the risks created by the growing number of unicorns, including risks related to dual-class stock structures in which founders receive super-voting shares, enabling them to maintain control over the board of directors, despite having relatively a small financial stake in the firm. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today about your views on dual-class stock. Thank you for having me. Professor, last October, the Council of Institutional Investors submitted petitions to the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. Those petitions proposed requiring certain newly listed companies that choose dual-class stock structures to adopt a time-based sunset provision in their governing documents. Such a provision would generally trigger a collapse of the dual-class stock structure to a one-share, one-vote structure within seven years of an IPO. To date, the stock exchanges have failed to act on our petitions. Several members of Congress have independently drafted various forms of legislation that in some cases would require public companies with dual-class stock structures to adopt a sunset provision along the lines proposed in CII's October petitions. If such a bill were introduced, would you support such legislation? Well, first, I would state that I am not a fan of the dual-class capital structures because I believe that these structures insulate corporate founders and managers from traditional accountability mechanisms in corporate governance, including board oversight, market discipline, and shareholder voice. And for that reason, I would support legislation that seeks to curb or eliminate this practice. I'd also mention that there are a number of approaches to creating sunset provisions other than the time-based sunset that CII and other groups have endorsed. For example, in Canada, it's common for sunset provisions to be triggered when the controlling shareholder's ownership interest falls below a certain threshold. That means that as a controlling shareholder begins to liquidate his investment, his control over the company will dissipate. So I also think it's worth considering phasing in the sunset to avoid the cliff effect or final period problems that some commentators have been concerned about. Professor, in your view, what is the single most significant risk to investors that you've identified with respect to companies that have adopted dual-class stock structures? Well, the main problem that I've identified with the dual-class capital structure in private venture capital finance companies is that the VCs and early investors who in the past had exercised close control over the operations of the companies they financed now seem to defer too readily to the whims of founders. In embracing this dual-class structure, VCs have shown reluctance to exercise proper management oversight for fear, perhaps, of developing a reputation for interference and meddling and thus being excluded from future attractive deals. And in some instances, these investors, who often serve on the boards of unicorn companies, have ignored or disregarded founder misconduct and allowed problematic behavior that they should have curtailed to burgeon into full-blown scandals. I think part of the problem is that even when investors do have concerns about mismanagement at unicorns, 
they hesitate to act because they realize they have a limited ability to rein in the founder and her team. And there's also an impulse to hide problems so as to maintain a positive public image in order to get to the next round of financing or to the IPO. A well-known example of this has been in the news recently involves WeWork, where WeWork directors and investors were aware for a long time about massive conflicts of interest that were created when WeWork leased office space in buildings that were owned, at least in part, by its founder and its CEO, Adam Newman. So the directors of WeWork looked away in part because Newman had secured voting control over WeWork in 2014. And even though these conflicts were publicized in a January 2019 article in the Wall Street Journal, the public seemed to be surprised when the full extent of Newman's conflicts were laid bare in WeWork's registration statement, which was filed in August 2019. Now, we've also seen some examples of this dynamic in other unicorns like Theranos and Uber, and the pattern also exists at many lesser-known firms. Professor, as you're aware, some of the proponents of dual-class stock structures argue that the structure is necessary to protect entrepreneurial management from the demands of ordinary shareholders. What's your response to that argument? Well, first, I would observe that there are plenty of corporate governance tools that already exist to protect incumbent management from shareholders' efforts to assert control over the company's operations. These include the panoply of anti-takeover devices, including classified boards, poison pills, and golden parachutes. So for this reason, I think that the argument that founders need added protection from takeover attempts by investors with a short-term focus seems weak. But I would also argue that by the time a company goes public, it really is appropriate for the company to transition from an entrepreneurial, personality-driven management style to a more systematic, disciplined approach to management. And this is because the public offering presents an opportunity to raise capital that's needed to achieve deliberate and sustainable growth. And this requires both focus and discipline. In addition, the more disciplined approach to management is essential because the founder is transitioning from owing responsibilities to a small group of investors to assuming disclosure and fiduciary obligations to the general public, that is, a very broad group of investors who are unable to fend for themselves. Therefore, I think that the argument that there's a need to preserve a company's entrepreneurial culture sometimes can be a distraction. And it appears instead that sometimes founders are seeking simply to preserve the imperial management style that they employed as private companies into the public phase of a company's life. That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Professor Renee M. Jones, Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Boston College Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff. J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.